Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan. I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red, And today we have an awesome guest with us, Jad Shaban, Associate Professor of Economics at the American University of Beirut. Welcome to the show, Jad. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to have you. We're going to talk a lot about the economy today. Um, and you have been very active, like producing content and talking about the economy. So it's really great to have you and talk about this in depth in terms of what the situation is, where we're heading, but also what kind of solutions we can propose or we should be advocating, uh, what kind of fair economic solutions in the in the near future. Uh, but before that, um, let's go over the news of the past week. Yeah, some some politics first. And I, I, I have to apologize to all of our listeners. I have not been keeping up with the counts for the number of days oh, since no. uh, since we last <laughs> had a government. I, I, I know this is something that is expected of me, and I apologize profusely for not mentioning it on our last couple of podcasts. He's talking to his super but, ego. Uh, <laughs> but as of Monday, it has been 27 days without a government, and there's still like nothing really on the horizon right now. Last week, we talked about the potential for Mohammed Safadi to be just designated prime minister, like the first step before even a government is uh, created. Well, that didn't happen. Like between the time we recorded last week and the time that the episode dropped, Safadi pulled out probably a smart decision on his part. Go, Go back and listen to that episode for all of the reasons why that's probably a smart decision for him to make. But yeah, since then, there has also just been zero movement. It seems as though the political class is very much just, they, they don't know what to do. There's no clear path forward. And meanwhile, everything just seems to be going to shit around them, and they have no idea how to actually fix things. Having said that, there are a lot of other things going on this week that, that sort of like touch on politics. Something really important happened at the Beirut Bar Association last Sunday, and that was their elections. We we now have an independent as the head of the Beirut Bar Association. Now, they're not like in control, independents are not in control of the bar or anything like that. No, the, the Bar Association is very, it, it, it's sort of known for, just like other professional syndicates, it's sort of known for being sort of like captured by the sort of political, I, I don't want to say parties necessarily, but the the the, the web of, of politics uh, in Lebanon. But even though that still exists at the bar, the head of the bar now is an independent and and the way that he became an independent is interesting as well because they had sort of like a, a first stage of elections for like five out of the 12 seats on the bar council and the the independent uh milham khalath won he got the most votes in in that round and then the, another independent also got one of the five seats right and so everybody pulled out after that from the the second round which is the the, the election of the president except for these two independents that had won seats on the board. And so it was an independent versus an independent. And all of the political parties, it seems, swung their support behind the independent who was not Melham uh, Khalaf. But Khalaf won anyway, which is huge. Uh, It's it's amazing that uh, he basically went up against all the powers that be. They didn't win in the first time, so they banded together in the second round, and they still lost. Yeah, it's great because like the political parties always have this strategy of and syndicates and unions to, you know, <clears throat> make a list of uh, the coalition of all parties and, you know, go against the independence. They did this. This is how they overthrew uh, Hanna Garib's uh, crew, which was very progressive and left wing and like very active with uh, with the union movement in the union coordination committee, mobilizing teachers and public sector workers. This is also what they did in the end of the 90s with Elias um, Rizek and the, and the General Federation of Labor. So it's it's a strategy that they always employ. And to see it fail and Milham Khalaf winning, Milham Khalaf is not like a political activist as much as like uh, someone who is involved in civil society more into like the 
a charity slash volunteering slash you know coexistence. He has this organization called Ofrejwa Farah Al Ata, which does some interventions like mostly focus on on you know coexistence and volunteering and helping the poor, etc. But he is known to be independent. He is known to be progressive to a great extent and close to civil society much more than he is close to the political establishment. So it's great. And and we've we've already seen a, a change on the ground. I forget was the the next day or the day after. Later on in the week, we had some protesters arrested. They were taken to Sakana Halu, the military, or, or sorry, the police campus down near the the Russian embassy. And he personally went down there to see about the detainees. That was uh, really great, which is amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. A very it's sort of like night and day from his predecessor at at the bar association. This is exactly in contrast to the previous uh, president who had actually withheld lawyers from detainees in Sur by refusing to appoint a lawyer first for them and the second round by refusing that this lawyer actually goes to Sur to uh, defend them. And this was a week ago. Wow. So you had a 180 degree shift. Exactly. In exactly the ways we want, like to treat uh, detainees and fairly and to have access to lawyers. And not only did this new president, you know, allow new lawyers, he went down to Sakant al with 20 lawyers but he went down himself, yeah, which yeah. is like you know, amazing. <laughs> Great in like in his positioning, you know. Like this is where I stand. I stand with the people, not with the with the establishment. Uh, we we also had a parliament attempted to meet this week, but that didn't exactly happen. Uh, p- parliament was supposed to meet for for a couple of reasons. One of them is because by the constitution, it has to fucking meet. It did. Uh, <laughs> it was supposed to meet on October twenty second, according to the constitution. They couldn't do that, and so they've been delaying it. But the thing is, is that the leaders of parliament decided, well, we're not just going to meet to fulfill our constitutional responsibilities. We're going to tack on a very much unconstitutional session to consider uh, a bunch of laws that we think will help quell street protests. And protesters were not having that. And so the the, the night before, we, we actually had several parties sort of pulling out. Uh, the LF completely pulled out, said we're not going to go to anything like this. Other parties like the Future Movement and uh, Makati's party said, well, we're going to attend the constitutional part of this, and then we're not going to attend the other part of it, which was sort of like this weird halfway measure that I, I think didn't really sell on the street because it's like, well, yeah, but if you're in there and providing a quorum, then there's nothing to really stop you from, you know, continuing on or, or to stop the the other parties who have a majority in parliament from continuing on. So mm. uh, for protesters, it was it was, well, we have to stop this or, or else, if, regardless of what, you know, Saad Hariri says uh, he's going to do with his with his block. And, and so they did. They they got there early in the morning. The protests got there early in the morning and they basically prevented MPs from from coming in. And there were some actually very striking scenes from that uh, from that morning. Uh, we 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 had a scene uh, of one MP's convoy basically like trying to get through the protesters and at one point shooting a gun through the windshield from the inside outside in order to, I guess, sort of like clear people away so they could speed through them. And get away. I still don't know whose convoy that was. I don't think that and we who, know for sure. But and how did he recruit that bodyguard? I mean, who shot through the windshield? It was so surreal when I saw the the video in slow motion, like the bullets coming from inside. But it's so amazing how that that our politicians are so scared of opening the window, even t- or going out of the car to shoot in the air. Like, like it's a moment where they they are so seriously scared of people because they, they it's the the anger in the streets is so serious. It's so real. 
And it's nice to see them, like, uh, you know, backing away, like some convoy is not even arriving and then doing a U-turn and going away or whatever. It's just, it's it was a very nice scene. It was very, it f- gave back the energy, like the student protests before them and like, you know, the different things that have been happening and the refueling this, the energy uh, for this revolution. It's really great. Yeah, and, and 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 then also we had Independence Day celebrations this week, and usually what happens for Independence Day? Uh, so Independence Day was Friday, November twenty second, the seventy sixth year of independence uh, from France. Usually, what happens on that day is downtown Beirut just becomes a no go zone, and they've got this huge military parade and like a bunch of like top leaders, the president, prime minister, speaker of parliament, uh, and a bunch of generals like review the troops. Well. They didn't want to try to do that again this year, uh, given the current circumstances, very, very smartly, right? Uh, and, and so the powers that be decided, well, well, we'll still do the military parade, but it's going to be up in Yarze, up in the hills above Beirut, where the defense ministry is located. And so they actually were like in the defense ministry compound and did this like very much scaled down version of the parade. You know, you still get the pictures of the soldiers marching past the president and uh, and Berri and and Hariri, but it, uh, it it's it's much smaller in scale and it's also just removed from the public to a huge huge degree. And in contrast to that. We saw for the first time in Lebanese history a civil parade down where they usually hold the military parade. Well, a bunch of people decided to get together. Well, we're going to have a parade of our own down here. It's going to be open to the public. <laughs> and then they actually, I, I don't know who organized it, but they did. They seemed to do a really, really good job. You the mothers marching, the teachers marching, the, the fathers marching. The Hela Hela Ho uh, committee. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, the kitchen wear. <laughs> there were regional uh, groups Pilots. that were marching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Media workers, uh, different sectors, uh, lawyers, nice. uh, doctors, pharmacists. Yeah, it, it, they, they like had their, their like flags or whatever, like where the, the Fauj... Uh, brigade, right? Fauj's brigade? Yeah, but it's like the, the, the Contingent. group... Contingent. Contingent, I think, yeah. Yeah, the best was the Tanajir one. Kitchenware. Pots and pans. Pots yeah. and pans. The symbols of the revolution. And also, apart from the parade, like the numbers were quite good, actually, in, 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 in March Square mm-hmm. and, and downtown generally yesterday. Uh, I mean, on Friday. It, it kind of proved that, you know, of course, it's objectively, it's fewer people participating in things, but still the momentum is big enough to be the number one thing happening in the country that the uprising is still going on. It's not like uh, fading away anytime soon, that people are determined, mm-hmm. etc. So it was really nice. Uh, like like people who went on Friday to the demonstration are people who, you know, the families and, and people in general who are not only like the activists or whatever, they were just the general population. My nephew and niece were there, you know, it's just, just like quite a nice celebration of people claiming back a day that has been uh, made into something uh, completely alienated from them and showing the distinction between what's happening in Yerzi, the establishment closing down on itself, and the people celebrating the, the, their unity in, in the Martyr Square and the Revolution Square. So it's uh, it's very symbolic. Yeah, it's taking it's taking back public space and taking back what should be a public holiday, you know, and, and really making it more about the people instead of about the whoever happens to be the, the president and the army commander at the time. Yeah. And and so it, it's, it's interesting to see just how, it, on the one hand, the the protest movement has caused politicians and the, the you know the, the the authorities to very much change their behavior you know like moving uh, this this big parade up to Yarze and everything but they haven't really caused a change in anything else as far as like forming a government or 
taking any, any of the political steps that, that need to be taken at this point. But we, we saw an initiative from one part of the, I guess, sort of like opposition side of things to, to sort of break that this week. A member of Beirut Medina T reached out and met with the head of the army. And, and this was not received well by other people, other activists, other protesters, other people uh, who, who are sort of like the opposition. Yeah, I mean, it was a time when the army was literally arresting our comrades. And I mean, the military intelligence has been acting in this uh, quite rogue way in terms of like arresting people without any warrants, people from the protests, etc. So it's an uh, it's a moment of uh, it's a very sensitive moment uh, of how we deal with the army, uh, especially with uh, so many people like trying to glorify the army all the time and bringing in this kind of militarist kind of rhetoric about like how the army is a solution to, to what's happening, etc. Going and meeting with uh, with with the head of the army was a big political faux pas, a big mistake to to most people. Like really, it was not received well at all, except in very small circles. And and so Beirut Medinati tried to sort of like fix the problem, but that didn't really go over well, right? Yeah, they released two tweets. Uh, first, trying to explain things and saying that the person who went. Uh, that actually they didn't say that the person who went went like uh, on a personal initiative they said that we went to meet and to ask for the army to be you know smoother and or like nicer and dealing with protesters etc and whatever it didn't fix anything because it proved that they made this decision as a political movement and Beirut Medinati I mean, before it used to be a campaign for municipal elections where, uh, you know, Jad, you were one of the main founders and, and uh, leaders, and I was a volunteer in one of the districts as well. But now it's a political part. It's registered as a political party. It's a political movement. So it's a different kind of uh, actor now. So they released the statement. It, was, it didn't go well at all. People were attacking them. Then they released another statement, and it, that was much better in terms of apologizing for, like, the mistake, like, acknowledging that it was not the right decision to an extent, and, like, yeah, just like, trying to fix things. Uh, but in general, it caused some trouble because Beirut Nadine is a name that everyone knows. It's not like um, a minor brand. It's really, really known across the country because the campaign was extremely successful in reaching to the to the to the public in general. So that was a bit of a of a faux pas by by one of the main groups, and especially in Beirut. But I mean that, that that also just speaks to problems of of organizing as a sort of like startup political movement, right? Like you you make mistakes, even if they they seem like very obvious, like things that you should be able to avoid. Mistakes do happen, right? And and of everything going on right now, the these kinds of things are going to happen. The question is, are are they fatal for the for you, or are they something that you can come back from and learn from? And I mean, it seems as though this is probably one of the latter. Yeah, one reflection on this. And I, if you have any thoughts, Shots, we'd mm -hmm. like to hear them as sure. well. The great thing about revolutions and, and popular uprisings in general is that it teaches people how to do politics in a way that is really people's politics. We really need to learn as independent groups and independent activists how to do politics that is close to the people, that is clearly anti-establishment with with an alternative vision for the country, etc. And not to make like mistakes like this, because this to me shows a certain kind of elitist uh, like uh, like the mistake comes from this elitist perspective of like yeah if we have contacts with people in power let's be in touch with them but this is not your role right you're part of a popular uprising against the establishment so your role is not to connect with them it's not to have a good link with them because it's not like the army will listen to it and be like oh we've been too harsh we're really sorry now the whole policy will change uh, we're not taking any political order it's so completely out of you know the the will to protect citizens so we're taking everything into account and we're changing it doesn't work so why do it 
the per- there's perspective is is politically flawed. No, I, I mean I completely agree. It's uh, f- for me, it's there is a tactical component and an ethical component. Let me start by the ethical component. When you're part of a popular uprising, you have to think about the benefits and you know the issues that matter for everybody. Even if you're a political party within this um, movement, within this uprising, you have to look at uh, everyone's interests, even the most uh, you know, average person and uh, the most vulnerable also. Mm-hmm. And I think the decision was in general not to d- discuss, not to negotiate with people in power because you want first to highlight that you're against people in power, but also you want to protect yourself from people in power exactly. who are actively undermining in the media and the in the armed forces, in foreign relations, everything, you know, they're targeting people. Look what happened in Iraq. The the popular uprising, what they gave to the government as names were 300 martyrs of the revolution in a very nice move in terms of showing people in power that you wanted leaders, you already killed them. Mm -hmm. So this is very dangerous to go and claim that you can speak in the name of people or at least claim to have their interests in mind. Mm -hmm. And that's a very strong ethical component that everyone should, especially those who are in the forefront, who are in the media exposure, who have who have parties that make decisions together, they have to think about the ethical collective, if you want. The second big mistake was tactical. So if you want to go, if you want to ask something from people in power, you can just release a statement. Exactly. And say, well, we disagree with this and this and that. We expect that you treat people better or stop arresting people when they're going back home and without lawyers, stop... Uh, doing these these practices why did you go and meet this very central authority now which some people are claiming yeah the army has nothing to do well it's not true the army has allegiance to the power to the people in power even though we might have family friends people serving in the army in the end this is a political institution right now it's part of the system so it is very unfortunate that this mistake happened i hope that this will not happen again but Going forward, this makes us all very, you know, reflective on mm-hmm. what roles we have mm-hmm. in terms of every single individual who has access to a mic, to a phone, to any kind of public domain. Uh, we need to think about our sisters and brothers that are taking hits on the streets. This is what matters first. And then, not, you know, we, we think about other things. But exactly. first is the, the safety priority. and and dignity of the people we're, we're with on the streets. Agreed. Um, and, and, and while all of this is going on on the streets and everything, this is going on against the backdrop of just what appears to be the makings of a calamity economically uh, that, that, we're, that we're looking at. We, we did have news on this front this week. Um, the banks reopened. <laughs> they, they've been largely closed for the past month or so uh, and for really sort of bullshit reasons, uh, in my opinion. Um, but they, they, they finally did reopen on Tuesday. ABL had come out before that, and uh, the, the Association of Banks came out before that and said, okay, well, we're going to unify the our sort of like informal capital controls, and we're going to say, uh, you're only allowed to take out $1,000 per week. That, that was sort of the, the, the top line number from that. And, and so that should make it easier. This $1,000 limit should make it easier for, you know, bank tellers and, and stuff like that, right? But we also had word that no, some of the banks were even putting more stringent controls in place, you know, like only no, not $1,000, $300, which is an, an insanely low amount of money. If you have your money in a dollar account and you can only take $300 a week out, that, that's crazy. And the other uh, important part I should mention about the ABL statement is, is that it, it, it sort of 
more formalize those restrictions on, you know, uh, transferring money abroad, saying you can only move dollars out in, you know, like sort of emergency cases. But but I mean, this this again runs into the same problem that we've seen before of just like, well, if you have WASTA, you can probably move that money, right? If you don't have WASTA, then you really have to make a very compelling case to whoever the officer is at, at the bank uh, working on working on your case. Yeah, we'll go into capital controls in a bit as a policy as opposed to a voluntary decision by banks. But let's let's step back and like look at the economic situation. Where are we now? Like what's 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 the big picture? Is the crash coming? Everyone's talking about a crash that is coming, an economic collapse, etc. Where do you see Jad, that we are uh, right now and uh, if if a crash is happening, how will it look like in your opinion? Well, you know, I mean, what's happening right now is just an extension of what has been happening for many years now, and especially the last three months, with something different at this moment in time. So what has been happening is that the state has been running on a deficit and with higher debt. The central bank has been trying to finance this debt through attracting dollars with the banks and then giving the banks very high you know, returns on the dollars it got from the banks through the financial engineering and then getting these dollars to refinance the state. So... We have had a major deficit in the state because of corruption everyone knows about. And then we had very slow economic growth. So the state has been having also very little tax revenue because the situation has been very slow because of the crisis in Syria, because of many issues that has been happening. And at the same time, because they increased interest in the banks to attract the dollars so that they finance this whole thing, with higher interest rates, people stopped investing. They just said, well, let's put the money in the bank. So those who had money, they put it in the banks to earn interest. Those who didn't have money, they started seeing higher prices. They started seeing very low economic activity and they started losing money. So this whole system in the past few years was skewed towards those who have high capital. The owners of big bank accounts, the bank owners, the politicians who have a lot of you know money laundering and corrupt deals that were able to put their money in very large accounts, mm-hmm. block them for a year or more, and get up to 8-10% on the dollars. This is unseen. You know, mm. Outside Lebanon, you get 1% on the dollar. And with low taxes on this revenue you get from interest. So this mismatch and this inequality in this situation created an economy where no jobs were created, prices were very high, the government had to you know, stop spending, so they stopped spending on most projects because they were asked to stop spending, and at the same time, they thought this was the solution. So you know, let's reduce the deficit by not spending money, which is stupid, in my opinion. And at the same time, this whole thing was profiting, actually, big bank owners and the people who were depositing their money in the banks. But the problem with this, of course, is or one of the problems is that this entire system sort of relies on new dollars coming into the economy. So when, when you hear people describe, oh, the Lebanese banking system is like a Ponzi scheme, which is something that has come up with increasing frequency over the past couple mm-hmm. of months, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about, oh, these big fat cats at the top, in order for them to keep making their like insane interest rates, they need people coming in. They need little guys, you know, or or big guys. They need new people coming in at the bottom and feeding into the system. And that has not been happening. Right. I mean, I, I disagree with the name because Ponzi is criminal. And what we've seen is a similar to a Ponzi scheme, but it's legalized. And it's not only legalized, it's supported by all political parties, all of them. You know, including those who oppose the banks. Historically, you know, in the government, you had the Shiite groups like Amal and Hezbollah 
and sometimes the free patriarchal movement but depends were always saying let's tax the bank let's impose on the banks but when the financial engineering was happening this major ponzi things they were completely silent they didn't say anything they didn't open an investigation they have mps they have others of course the others i mean we have a prime minister who owns a bank who owns 49 percent in bank med saad hariri he still owns this amount so we have ministers and a political class that is outside of the Hezbollah or Amal. Amal, I'm not sure, but <laughs> Hezbollah, I think so. Uh, they are very close to the banking system. So, of course, their interest is aligned with the banking system. So what I'm trying to say is that all the political class was agreeing of this scheme because they wanted to fund their spending. They wanted to fund their, their uh, recruits in the government ahead of elections. If you recall, they recruited a lot of people in the government and uh, they disguised everything under, yes, we are under austerity budget, but this never happened. We, they spent so much money and in the end, they wanted someone to pay for it. The central bank came in with fresh dollars that came out from outside. But now, like, the, the, the recent developments that made us, uh, like, go into this crisis mode, like, all of this was happening, but only the economists knew about it and people follow economic news. Uh, the things uh, in the, over the last four months, maybe, uh, since this whole thing about, you know, gas stations closing and maybe uh, not having and not having, you know, access to bread or whatever. And everything that we talked about in previous episodes, we don't need, we don't need to explain it. But there was this problem with the issue of importers and not accepting lira because the lira is de- depreciating compared to the dollar in the market. So we have this situation where the lira, there's low demand on the lira and it's depreciating in an extremely dollarized uh, economy. And uh, the people who will pay the price are the people who have loans in dollars and get paid in lira or the people in general who get paid in lira mm-hmm. and, and use all of the imported products that dominate the market. Like more, more recently, I want you to give like more like of a, of a, of a current picture rather than just like what the system has been and why it's broken like where are we today what can happen if we're talking about an economic collapse or an economic crash a financial collapse where are we in this uh, on this specifically so so yeah i mean so the backdrop to this was the whole situation we talked about it created two crises of confidence the first one a crisis of confidence in the dollar in the lira and the exchange rate this was predating the, the, the Thawra, but now it's even aggravating. And the crisis means that people want to exchange immediately their lira to dollars. They, or those who are asking to be paid for their imports, they only accept now in dollars, which you know, happened for the fuel importers and others. They, everybody wants to protect themselves against fluctuations in the exchange rate. And it became even more serious now. Everybody is now asking for a market exchange rate when they're dealing. Even, you know, the foreign downstairs is asking for the jibne, the cheese that is bought for their input. The, yeah. the cheese seller is telling the foreign to pay him at a rate of $2,000, which is, may not be the case, but they're just protecting themselves. And that's very bad. And the crisis of confidence in the, in the lira will have repercussions and is having repercussions on inflation because the merchants will protect themselves by increasing their prices. And we've seen in the last month now about 15% inflation. We don't have like accurate figures, but this is what you hear from different sources that inflation and the rising prices were up to 15%. So people basically who earn in lira lost 15% of their purchasing power mm-hmm. in a month alone. And that, that's, yeah, that's not an annualized figure. That's 15%. Like month, month on month. Yeah. Knowing that last year, inflation was about 6%. 
So you've seen a double inflation just in a month. Exactly because, I mean, it's not goods are available. Imports may have been disrupted a bit. But it's just that merchants were and, and everybody selling in, on the market and importing from abroad wanted to protect themselves against fluctuations. They, don't want, they didn't want to lose their price. So to make it very simple, if you're importing and uh, your price is now 3,000 lira for this, I don't know, chocolate bar, and 3,000 lira in a week will be worth much less than it is today compared to the dollar, then you yeah. lost money as an importer, so you need to imp- increase prices. And maybe the fact that it's not a very competitive market that we have in the in the trade sector and the exclusive license for import and the, the oligopolies that exist in many sectors. This is why the problem gets worse and worse in this situation. Right. And, and, and I just want to add that, yeah, in, in some cases they are still importing, but in other cases, maybe they're not. And we've seen a lot of movement over, over the past week. Maybe importers are just like also they're, they're afraid. So, oh, well, we'll let our stocks dwindle down to something like very, very scary levels that, uh, you know, we had the the poultry farmers come out this week saying we don't have that much left to go. Uh, we need feed to be imported. We had the beef importers talking about how, oh, well, we have basically until the beginning of January or sorry, the beginning of December. And then we don't know the, the price of beef maybe could double or something like that. So you, you, there are all of these not, uh, knock-on effects that also feed back into the problem. If you got low stocks, well, eventually you do need to import. So that means you're going to need to go and exchange those lira for dollars. And that means more pressure on the on the peg that mean, or, or on the exchange rate. Absolutely. So, so people have lost faith in the fixed exchange rate and are hedging around and they're protecting themselves around it. And it's very much linked to the second crisis of confidence, which actually this is new, and this is new in even the history of Lebanon. Even the war, we didn't have this, a civil war. is a crisis of confidence in the banking sector. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, people have lost faith that if you keep your money in the bank, it is safe. It's yeah. better to take it and leave it at home. Exactly. And there is a kind of a bank run happening at different scales. It, it increase and decreases but in the beginning of the the protest movement this was limited when the banks closed for two weeks people panicked they said what are they doing are they removing their money abroad and my money with it where is my money and the people when when they opened they came back and they said give us our money and this is very very bad it's very bad for the banks themselves because then the bank loses its role as a you know a vehicle of money investment and savings for people it lost its role as a vehicle of lending because they stopped lending to the private sector a long time ago. They lent to the government and central bank, unfortunately. Now they're losing their deposits. They're losing the confidence of the people. What does it mean practically? It means that if everybody goes now and wants to withdraw their money, the banks will collapse because the money is not there. When you put $1,000 in the bank, you, they only keep $100. $900 is invested because they don't want to keep it. They, they lose on it. Where is this 900 going? Well, out of 900, another 100 went to the private sector credit and $800 went between the government and the central bank. The central bank alone took $600 out of the $1,000. Wow. So the money and is And the number is based on like the statistics, right? Yes, this is based on the consolidated balance sheets of commercial banks. Mm-hmm. But I simplified it just to, you know, compare it to the $1,000. So whenever you want to go to take your money, the money is not there. So what can the bank do? It can tell you, well... I won't give it to you. Is it legal? It's, it's not legal. The current account, the checking account that you have, by law, they have to give it back at any, all time. The, at any time, all the amount. Mm-hmm. So if you have $1,000 in your checking account, you need it, they have to give it to you. It's not their right to keep it. 
However, they can cite something called force majeure, which is like extraordinary situation. Mm -hmm. So basically, how does it happen? It's illegal for them to keep it. You have to make a complaint. You can complain to some authorities, and I'll talk about them. They're very important, but they're not active, and they're co-opted by the banking sector. You make a complaint to your lawyer. Your lawyer raises a, 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 a legal suit, and this can take several months. But they also in this, they can also claim that there has been extraordinary situation. A lot of depositors, we heard, we don't have evidence, but big depositors are planning to sue the banks. And the banks have already recruited major law firms to protect themselves, and this is currently in the making. So it is legal for them to withhold your deposits account because they're blocked until maturity, and you can't really move them around. They, they, you sign the contract, and, and they're blocked. On top of all of this, your relation with the bank is governed by a contract that you sign. And in Lebanese legislation, the contract is what we call an adherence contract. You adhere to their conditions. So they can change their conditions without coming back to you the moment you sign on the opening of this contract. So, and it's very personal. So each person, each client, they, they get a, a contract. There are common conditions, but each bank can impose the conditions they want. The association of banks that you mentioned is only an association. They can recommend that, okay, let's sit down and make common decisions on recommendations. They don't need to be binding. They, they are recommendations. If they take them into consideration, it might be better, but they're not binding by law. So now if, if I don't know, if, if we can, can we say that uh, the restrictions that the banks are putting on, the, on themselves and rather than coming from the central bank or from the state, is what's protecting the banking sector from collapsing because if there is a bank run and they don't have these restrictions, they don't have the liquidity to give people their money because their money is with the state and the state doesn't can't pay this money to the banks so that they're giving to citizens because they don't have it. So it's it's a bunch of like it's a it's a complicated situation where basically the money that people own in the banks does not really is not really present for them to take it. And if the banks don't limit themselves then uh, it will collapse. The, fin- the banking sector will collapse. Banks have to uh, announce their declared bank- bankruptcy and everything. I'm, what I'm asking is, till when can this go on? Like, what do you expect to happen? Because some people are saying this is temporary until something happens and it explodes, whatever. What, what is this thing that can trigger an actual collapse uh, if the banks have these restrictions on their own? Nizar, the main problem is that these, condi- these restrictions did not serve them well because they, they were not coupled with transparency and regulatory measures that people trust. So again, we have a problem of confidence. The banks made these measures, and everyone talked about money being transferred abroad, bank owners transferring their own money. Politicians uh, in some cases. Politicians Which? too, absolutely. So the confidence is still not restored. So even if they have these restrictions, there will still people will go and ask and What I've been trying to lobby for or even ask for is that we have the Banking Control Commission, which is a very powerful commission that controls the banking sector. It's independent from the central bank and the banks, appointed by the government. It's a five members commission. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it hasn't met for 10 months. The five members, one of them only has to be nominated by the uh, Association of Banks. The five of them were nominated by the Association of Banks in the the past nomination in 2015. Some members are now serving for 20 years on the commission, so it's dysfunctional. By law, this commission regulates the banks, can check their accounts, can verify and force and, and remove bank secrecy and publish reports that actually say, yes, there were no transfers abroad, 
please calm down. Your deposits are safe. They are invested in this and this assets. And we have to impose some restrictions, maybe voluntary, but don't panic. Mm -hmm. Nobody's saying this to the people. The people are just faced with decisions and they're not faced with transparency. The second authority that can make also decisions is the central bank. The central bank, we only have the governor who's under a lot of scrutiny, a lot of attack. He has four vice governors that are vacant. They were not uh, you know, uh, filled for the past, since March. So, so they're empty positions and they're, and they're, empty they're, they're important in the decision-making And process. the central bank usually has a central commission, it's called, headed by the governor, but it has four governors, the head of the Ministry of Finance, the director general of Ministry of Finance and director general of Ministry of Economy. And they have to meet on a monthly basis or more if there is urgency, like now. They're not meeting because it's, the council is not formed. Plus, you have somebody appointed by the government called the commissioner of the government to control the central bank that can look into the accounts and look at the movements. This person is also not appointed. So there are institutions that are in place that supposedly will give us more confidence, but they're not there. Nobody's telling us, well, you know, this figure about, okay, so if we need a lot of money to finance in dollars the economy, how much, how much reserves does the central bank have? The central bank says 30 billion. The net reserves maybe are 12 billion. Some people say 2 billion. Who can verify? I mean, we need an independent authority, an independent auditor. So we don't know. And, and I think this is where the problem is. Because we still have no assurances like formal and people that can trust them, people are still on the, in the panic mode. And for the banking sector of Lebanon or for any banking sector, this, this recreates conditions of a bank run the moment they can do it. Some people work their lives to get the savings account. Definitely. It's unfair to treat them this way. So if, if the situation remains unchanged, if no major policy intervention is made, and we will talk about what these policies can be, but if nothing changes in what's happening today, we will have probably a lot of small companies that rely on importing things going bankrupt or closing down. We will see prices getting high for everyone, purchasing power of everyone who gets their money or has their savings in, in Lebanese pounds. Uh, or has their retirement with pensions, whatever, in Lebanese pounds will be decreasing. So basically, everyone will be losing, literally everyone, if nothing, re- if no fun, like drastic measures are being uh, are taken. Yeah, yeah. We, I, I like the way that you put this, uh, these dual crises of confidence. You know, people will continue going to the banks to withdraw as much money as they can. And yes, that'll be slowed now a bit by these informal capital controls. But then at the same time, you you have the this deterioration in the broader economy. You have, you know, uh, stocks of goods that keep getting lower and lower and lower. And eventually people are going to start doing with goods what they're doing with dollars, which is hoarding them, right? Which is only going to exacerbate the problem unless something happens to reintroduce a, a, a level of trust in the system. Absolutely. I mean, if you keep on having the restrictions on imports and on facilitating the lives of merchants and controlling prices, and you keep on having people who want their dollars back, eventually you can put the dollars home, but then these dollars will be worth less because prices will be much higher. So you're basically impoverishing everybody and creating conditions for a hunger revolution. I mean, for now, we've, we're having a, a nice revolution, you know, a revolution of ideas of, of you know, against corruption. Later on, if the you know this situation deteriorates, you will have riots. People who have lost their money, you know, and lost if so. The and the signs for that would be 
uh, double digit inflation going more up prices increasing a lot and the banks getting more anxious and people getting more anxious about their money and this happened in the 90s here end of the you know in the end of the 80s early 90s in 91 92 this happened in the mid 80s this happened when the uh, you know the, the dollar also shot up against the lira and people were exactly doing that they were stocking goods they were overstocking you know we're not seeing that yet this is why i'm a bit cautiously optimistic that you can still save the system because it still has a lot of money the banks to be clear are profitable because they're big banks and they made a lot of money they're not solvent they don't have liquidity the li- the, the liquidity is not there mm. their profits are distributed around and we can force them, quote-unquote, to repatriate these profits from abroad and try to engage again in the solutions. But absent a government, absent any regulating authority that dares to you know, show itself and say, yes, I'm controlling, I'm looking at things, I, I take responsibility, you know, then rumors are abound and, and you know, analysts and everybody's just pitching in to, to create more confusion and ultimately create more panic. And and at at this point, Riyad Salame, the governor of the central bank, coming out and doing the broken record thing of like everything is fine. We have thirty eight billion dollars in reserves. Doesn't cut it when you have people like Tofi Gaspar coming out and saying, "Well, no, actually, BDL's net foreign exchange position is like forty nine billion in the red." Right. And and then people people see this debate going on on you know on tv and the newspapers or whatever and then they go and try to buy something and the price is higher and they go and and they try to exchange their money and they don't get what Riyad Saleme says well if everything's fine then they should get a, a certain price so they're not getting that and so something something has to give at some point and hopefully like yeah it seems as though there is still room to reintroduce some sort some level of trust at the higher levels but clearly like and and this sort of like goes towards the protesters point of Kiluniani Kilun you know like the people in charge to include Riyad Salime and the other people uh who are running the banking sector they're not the ones to do it absolutely and that's why in the in what can be considered as as ways forward we haven't thought about this before that the banks are now officially part of the problem because before it was the government and indirectly the central bank and the banks come at third level now the priority is different now you have to fix the banking system first the confidence first which we we didn't see this coming i mean the, the this anxiety of people increasing and and so for now the, the first thing that should happen is well fire the whole banking control commission get new people on board, independent, uh, get new management in the central bank, governor, vice governor, uh, the commissioner, and recruit an international auditor that comes and audits the whole banking system. And then tells very quickly, and then tells the people, okay, this is how much reserve we have, this is how much deposits we have, the situation is okay here, the liquidity is fine here, and somebody has to do this to calm down the situation. That's one. Of course, after having a government. I mean, who will appoint this control commission by law is the new government. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is boils down to having executive authority. And then once you have a new government, you can start tackling the economic problems that will help you get out of the crisis. Again, the most urgent thing is to tackle inflation, to tackle the availability of stocks and credit to the importers and access to dollars. So one idea that's been discussed is 
why don't we open a facility for these importers with subsidized interest on on getting the dollars for them so instead of you know now if you're an importer you want to get a loan from the bank to import something even in lira you you pay 22 percent it was 15 before now it's 22 percent the overdraft Mm. it needs to be brought down to five percent how well here we need international support we need the like money donated or given to us through this facility exactly for importers that are importing essential products and goods and services used in local production. We don't want to finance importers of luxury items and others, so we have to be very selective. Mm -hmm. But this is urgent. It's urgent to control the dollar availability for importers so that inflation is tamed. This is this is now, it's also new. I mean, uh, this is something very urgent. And then down the road, you need to work by, you know, first taxing the bank deposits that are still around, that are, you know, making a lot of interest, lowering their interest through either through very high taxes or bluntly just reducing the interest. Anybody who had been earning an interest can do that? in 10%, you can do it. I mean, who, who is the authority that can do? Banking Control Commission and the Central Bank. Okay. Not the Association of Banks of Lebanon <laughs> because... It's conflict of interest. I mean, obviously, you, they're the lobby of the banks. So they're they can't the lobby be of like, the banks. The heads and the members are have money in the banks. Mm-hmm. It's like asking, uh, you know, so Saad Hariri has a share in a local bank that has lent money to the government. How can you ask him to issue uh, a budget without deficit? Because mm. then he wants to have to issue treasury bonds so that his banks buys them. Mm. It's conflict of interest. So I mean, being prime minister in this situation is a conflict of interest, to of be course, honest. Like, like the uh, previous minister, uh, yeah. minister of economy was conflict of interest, and another minister of state, who, who Khairuddin, um, also conflict of interest. If I want something from this new government, is to have everybody sign conflict of interest declarations. L- show us your conflicting interests. Mm-hmm. Where do you own money? Which they already do reveal that to the president of the republic, but it's not made public. They reveal their bank accounts, but not their companies and where they invest their money oh really okay. they only reveal secrecy they, they they lift secrecy on their bank account in lebanon which is you know very minor i mean it's just uh, cash to spend on cigars and champagne and, <laughs> and models <laughs> so apart from this uh, so apart from these measures that you mentioned what do you think for example should be policy in terms of capital controls which is what everyone's talking about uh, for for the you talked about taxing banks profits or the deposits. What's your position on a on a haircut policy? Uh, th- these policies that are being talked about. So so I'm first very much for keeping the value of the peg for now, at least for another year or two. We can't play around with the peg. At least we we should try to have an po- official policy not to move the exchange, not to devaluate, because you have a lot of people making their ends meet in Lebanese pound. You have around you know half a million families in Lebanon that rely on wages from the public sector mm-hmm. on pensions the national social security fund the savings of a lot of the people who work in the private sector are also in Lebanese pound mm-hmm. if you devaluate by 20 30 40% you will have a lot of poor people on 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 the streets you have a lot of people who will lose their incomes basically so devaluation is out of the question how do we make sure then that the central bank has enough dollars to intervene against devaluation you need to reduce the money needed to pay in dollars so the euro bonds the the debt of the government in in foreign currency has to be rescheduled it is owned by the central bank and the banks so we have to negotiate with the banks not negotiate this time impose on the banks 
that they reschedule this debt. So re debt rescheduling definitely. Haircuts, what are haircuts? It's basically to take back money from those who made some money on, on their accounts. Well, this doesn't help a lot in the confidence setting because mm. even if you made a lot of money, I'm personally against taking this issue which goes at the heart of the banking system. Mm. What I'm for, which is a similar type of intervention, is lowering the interest rate immediately. So it's like a future haircut. So whatever money you made in the past, it's yours. It happens. I cannot reverse it. It is not ethical also to reverse it. I mean, uh, maybe on big accounts, why not? But who, who, who to make? Who will make this decision? I mean, that's that's sort of the thing, though. And, and this is the argument that comes from like Dan Azzi and others. Like, mm. you know, they made these ridiculous profits. They they knew that they were ridiculous, and there is no reason that the the little guy should be left paying the bill right. for this. Even if we do a haircut of fifty percent on these guys, they're still gonna be making like a handsome profit, a really nice profit off of their original investment. So, yeah. uh, especially if the situation gets worse, then why not? I mean, also mm. the, take into consideration the extreme concentration of money in, 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 in bank accounts. Like, um, I was reading this, I think it was Credit Suisse, talking about 0.5% of the, of the population right. of account holders having more than $1 million. So, if the 0.5%, top 0.5% will pay so, uh, the price of them choosing consciously to invest their money in a country that is does not have a productive economy and is relying on this money as rent to finance a horrible economic mm -hmm. system and people who have one more than one million dollars usually have some knowledge about how the economy works and they know they're taking a risk mm -hmm. so they were taking advantage of the system 10 percent on the dollar 15 16 percent on the lira insane amounts of interest mm -hmm. so in some cases they tripled their money in 10 years they don't deserve it like simply speaking like they didn't yeah. invest it no one benefited from it no jobs were created they don't re they do they really deserve it so i understand the i i take the, the the argument of like the confidence because it's a very central point but in my opinion can the confidence get worse right now like I, i'm asking like can can the confidence in the lebanese economy get worse so should we worry about a haircut policy affecting confidence more than it's already damaged yeah let me tell you why i think so it's a bit um, it's not conventional i agree but we have a banking sector which is in the heart of the crisis right they're responsible for many things many things knowingly and their depositors and investors also knowing but now we're asking the banking sector and they have to first reschedule the debt so they have to lose money on the debt they have so they have to lose income on the debt with the government because they they own a big chunk of it and they have to lose money on the debt for the central bank, the same. Mm -hmm. And then we're asking them also to cut down on their uh, depositors' earnings and take back money from there. And depositors are mainly also bank owners and their families. So the same uh, you know, class, if class, you want. Yeah. And we're also asking them to lower interest rates on the current deposits, which means that they will also have lower revenues on their investments. Mm -hmm. so we're asking a lot of things from them. I'm just saying that if we implement two of three, which are more logical and easy to, easier to implement. And the haircut, you don't do a, like a reclamation of funds. You do a, a taxation, very high tax, on the interest revenue of the last year, for instance. Then it's a more of a softer haircut. Why? Because if you hit down on the banks in all of these ways, first, they won't accept. They will have a big resistance and they're still very big. I mean, who are we to impose? I mean, we're barely now having a government that we might uh, want. So... We definitely want to have uh, a good solution for the people. 
But this solution has to make sure that some money stays here and that this money is being recycled in a way in the, in the economy, especially the foreign currency. Having informal capital controls in this way and having large haircuts makes the foreign investors and the foreign depositors who have actually half of the foreign currency deposits are foreign. That makes them doubtful even of the banking sector in a few years. It, it gives you a big hit on your reputation as a country. So what I'm saying is that we can put this on the side in terms of a tough haircut and make sure we have a huge tax on the revenues that are made in the, so you can put a 25%, 30% tax just on the revenues of the past year, mm-hmm. get them to reschedule the debt, lower interest rate immediately from the 8% to 4 3%. They still make some money, but the depositors was very few. And then with the central bank, try to uh, you know tax the banks on their financial engineering profits. So how, how does that work? It's like, uh, because many people are talking about it, and it sounds to me like a good idea, like the banks made huge profits from financial engineering without doing any work for the economy just by swapping things. Uh, Last so- year, the banking sector made something like $2.5 billion overall. Bank Audi and Bank Blom, both of them made over 500 million i believe last year just in profit yeah it's insane it's insane and all of this is mm. basically taxpayer money uh, recycled or just directly so taking back the money of the financial engineering um like in a one-time tax does that sound like a good idea to you you have many ways of doing them because then you have to look at the bank's profitability and balance sheets because like we're saying for now the banks were profitable and are still like the ba- they have good balance sheets they have a liquidity problem do we want to push them into bankruptcy by you know, imposing all of these measures? Mm-hmm. I would say no, I mean, because we're not in a country that has resources. Mm. In Venezuela and other countries, those who made a coup or a revolution, they just destroyed the former setup. They just built new things. Here we don't have the luxury of saying, well, let's bring down the banking sector and build up from scratch. Because we have the, the uh, Lira peg issue that is linked to social issues, we have a high import bill. We don't produce much. We have geopolitically, we're very much in a bad situation. It's a divided country. So my, I, I mean, my personal opinion is that we need a, a softer landing. We need a way out that actually makes the banks and their supporters pay a lot of money, but also keeps them afloat. So the way you can do this financial engineering tax is actually you force them into subscribing into uh, central bank securities at lower interest rate. So basically you you replace their holdings with the uh, central bank with a cheaper one mm, okay. and, and get them also to pay or to get lower interest on their holding. So it's a way of postponing their, their profits for this year and implicitly taxing them. They will lose money in, in any ways, but so they will not lose cash money immediately. That's, that's the big issue we're doing. In all of this, you need formal capital controls. You need legislation with capital controls, with a very clear list of exceptions for medical reasons, for financing your, your kids abroad, studies, whatever it is. But you can't do all of this without formal capital controls with the oversight of independent parties and authorities. Because mm-hmm. the way it is now, we're talking about taxing and whatever. And some figures are, are crazy, like three, four billion that left the country already. In Egypt, in Greece, in Venezuela, many other countries, the first step was to control the situation is that the the government here in Lebanon, you need parliament to legislate formal capital control for a specific period of time, because you can't have it indefinitely, and with specific conditions that calms people's minds and at the same time 
make sure that people know that there is not, nothing happening behind their backs. But right now, we don't know anything. <laughs> we have zero visibility over how the sector is behaving. But I'm more optimistic on, on a fact that the concentration of capital in the country in the hands of a few and the fact that they're not in the same party, they're from different backgrounds and sectarian backgrounds, would make sure that they will have solutions for themselves first. Yeah, yeah. Because they can't transfer their money abroad. There's a lot of blacklists everywhere. And at the same time, they still have a lot of money here that they don't want to lose like this. And with foreign investors, you know, you have uh, Khawaja, you have Deutsche Bank that owns Bank Audi, you have a lot of concentration of money mm. in the banking system, which I think, funny enough, I mean, for me, I'm more of a leftist side, but I'm also, you know, happily content right now that the concentration of capital will probably find a solution on its own. We need to weigh in. I don't know how the, the, po the people can weigh in on the solution. I mean, these policies um, that we've been talking about, let's be realistic, none of them will take place if they're not so mainstreamed by progressive groups and activists and economists, etc. And the government. Also. Uh, I mean, and, and pushed and, and be uh, presented as the priority for the next government, right? Absolutely. Because the next government, I mean, just based on what people are demanding in the streets and the groups and everyone, the government has like three priorities, right? Uh, anything that it can do related to corruption, basically the, the laws, um, transferring the laws to, of, of the independence of the judiciary, etc. But it's not its job, it's the job of the, of the judiciary to do actually the actual prosecution for corruption. Second thing is the early election and whether it wants to like introduce a new electoral law. And the third thing is the economy. These are the things that people are demanding from this new government. So... It's, it's, it's a quite a narrow and specific mandate. What I think the, the, the issue is, um, is that we're so far away from a politics that um, is based on a political discourse and a political debate that is based on economic policy. And this is the perfect moment to, to, to kind of start politicizing the economy. There are two things. There is like fighting what the state is already doing, the government or the, the establishment is already planning for the economy. Uh, that what we saw in Hariri's plan uh, uh, of, of, you know, selling state assets or privatization that is completely yeah, stupid. Yeah, that, that seems to be like, that. that's what they're going to do first, right? Let's sell state assets to themselves for a good price and we'll, you know, solve the, the, the deficit for a year or something like that, which is something I assume that it, it, it's, it's not a sustainable option. It's not, and the problem right now is not really the deficit. I mean, you you can, uh, you know, figure out the deficit by rescheduling the debt for now and, you know, win some in a year or two. And uh, yeah. then make sure that you restructure the, the public sector, think about priorities. I'm personally more for investing in the public sector. We need more services in the public sector. I'm against austerity. And I think with the with the size of the banks and the, the profits they made and the way we should deal first with them, this is the priority. It's not now the deficit. Even though the IMF, the World Bank, everybody's fixated about the deficit. Definitely we need a low deficit, but I, I, my, I don't need a zero deficit. We need to spend some money somewhere. You need to get the economy rolling again. Mm -hmm. So if, if, I, if I understand your view of things mm -hmm. right, basically, all right, we, we have to deal with the, with the financial crisis. And the way we do that, the, the, way, the way you approach this is what's done is done. The profits that were made were made. Yeah, they got it. That If you got in and you made money, fine. That's your money. But we need to set, starting right now, we reset the game. We introduce a set of rules 
that is transparent, everybody knows them, and that are enforced. And we have an authority that is able uh, and willing to enforce them. And yeah, there's going to be pain going forward, but all of this is going forward. We're not going to look back at the stuff that, that happened before. Right. I mean, we're going to look back by taxing wealth that was made, but not by expropriating uh, the money that was owned by people. Because expropriation is irreversible and it damages the economy. In, in a different setting, I would be with it. You know? But right now in, in, in the country that has so many vulnerabilities, you need to start by getting on a fixed, uh, you know, on, on a clear road. And this road first has to have clear capital controls. Within the capital controls, a very good authority so actually, the, it's not only the government that needs to change. We need to change the financial regulation authority of the banking system. And this system has to make sure that it regulates the banks in a way that serves the people, that serve the country, and not serve the owners of capital that made so much money before. And then, you know, the history will punish them on its own. And if they don't correct themselves, they don't start reinvesting in different places, in, in different ways, you know. But coming and saying that, again, that we will solve all our problems immediately by getting all the money from everybody immediately, it's, it's unrealistic, it doesn't work, it hurts, it backfires. And it did backfire in other countries when they did these extreme measures. You know. So I'm with having very tough measures, very tough taxes right now on the richest, lowering their interest they make, uh, getting money from the banks through rescheduling the debt, and this will speed up you know, the economic recovery, lower the demand on dollars, and this will stabilize the exchange rate. The problem is that the current political class has a different agenda completely, like you said. They want to sell assets, they want to get dollars from somewhere else, not from their own accounts, not from the banks. And this is very dangerous because they're shooting themselves in the foot. They don't know that, but they are, they are doing this. They think they're making short-term profits, but there won't be any country for them to rule on. There will be no, no people. There will be no economy. You know. If they continue doing the paper they have and everything, ignoring the financial sector, ignoring the reforms that we talked about. Aid, aided and abetted by the international community. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think the international community, the first meeting they had with Hariri when there were the protests, they came out in full support of the Hariri government, the Friends of Lebanon. And they supported his plan. His plan didn't mention anything about the banking sector. Nothing. Nothing about central bank. No appointments whatsoever of the regulatory authorities. And knowing that one of the, the, the persons that is now the name surfaced to become maybe prime minister affiliated with Hariri is the current head of the Banking Control Commission, who was a longtime employee of Bank Med and Future TV and everything, gives you a lot of ideas about how, where we're heading. You know. What's his name? Samir Hamoud. Okay, so I think we, we gave like a good idea <laughs> of really like the problem. It's, it's, a, it's a long discussion of how to actually build a, a different economic model. We'll definitely have uh, an episode maybe in, in calmer times about that. With a new I, government. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't get to talk about uh, potential forced conversion of, lira, of dollars into lira. So yeah, we definitely have to talk about this again. Yeah, there are a lot sure, of things, anytime. the rents that people pay, the loans, etc. More policy details that we can get mm. into. But um, this is, I guess, all the time we have and a bit more. Thank you so much, Chad, for coming. Uh, Thanks for it's having me. It's been a pleasure Thank to, to yeah, have this discussion. And um, we'll see you next week with another episode. Uh, until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red. And Jad Chaban.
And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.